Hello, welcome to the IPR podcast. In this episode, we invite Lucian Ashworth, professor of political science at the Memorial University of Newfoundland, Duncan Bell, professor of political thought and international relations at the University of Cambridge, and Nivi Manchenda, senior lecturer in international politics at the Queen Mary University of London. And we'll recap the book forum, which discusses Duncan's new book, Dream Worlds of Race. Empire and the Utopian Destiny of Anglo America. So, Duncan, can you briefly introduce your book to our audience? Yes,、uh, and before doing so, just to say thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm delighted to to be here, and、uh, thanks also to the others for、uh, sharing their time to to come on it too. So, Dream Worlds of Race、uh, is a work of intellectual history, understood in a broad sense. It explores a wide range of arguments,、uh, a discourse about visions of Anglo-American unification or integration at the turn of the 20th century. So, between roughly 1880 and 1914, a substantial number of thinkers and political actors on both sides of the Atlantic pushed for the union of Britain and the United States, with the aim of securing their joint geopolitical domination and leadership. And these projects came in many and varied forms, ranging from. Real cooperation through alliances of one kind or another, full political integration, including the creation of a new federal state.、And、nearly all these projects were grounded in claims about the racial identity of Anglo-America. This was usually characterised as Anglo-Saxon or English-speaking. Either way, it was an expression of white supremacism, or so I argue. It was claimed that the race needed to be unified politically to achieve its destiny in ordering the world. I intervene、uh, in a variety of historiographical debates,、uh, for example, over the character of settler colonialism,、uh, or on the intellectual history of the special relationship, so-called, between Britain and the United States, as well as in some IR debates, for example, over、uh, the genealogy of the democratic peace thesis and the role of race in international thought. There's three main shifts from some of my earlier work. People know that,、uh, which focused very much on the idea of Greater Britain, unification of Britain and its then settler colonies in the late 19th century. So the first shift is geographical. I move to looking at the Anglo-American connection.、Uh, the second is analytical. I use、uh, a framework of utopianism, or more specifically, racial utopianism, to make sense of、uh, the arguments I'm looking at. The content of the utopia is given in terms of claims about perpetual peace that will follow, supposedly,、uh, from Anglo-American unification. So I use that as a kind of general framework to think about the materials and locate it in relation to the explosion of utopian thought in the late 19th century. And methodologically, I、uh, expand, I guess, the corpus of texts or kinds of texts that I've looked at in the past to include increasing、uh, amount of literary material、uh, above all late 19th and some late 20th century science fiction writing. So the book's divided into two parts. I won't go through the arguments in them, but the first part looks at four key individuals: the writer H. G. Wells,、uh, the imperialist Cecil Rhodes, a journalist called W. T. Stead,、uh, who was very prominent at the time. And the industrialist Andrew Carnegie, and I go into real depth in their thought. They were all key、uh, proponents of this idea. And in the second half of the book, composed of three chapters, I look at a series of themes. So one of them looks at、uh, literary fictional representations. Another looks at arguments around democracy, peace, and utopia. And a final version looks at citizenship and, and patriotism. Before in the conclusion, I make a set of arguments、uh, about how Afro-modern thought. Uh, particularly, African American thought and some Black British thinkers could 
challenged at the time, uh, these arguments about white supremacy, and then how some late 20th century science fiction writing, above all steampunk, uh, challenged some of the underlying assumptions about, about time and history that underpinned the late 19th century expressions of this idea. So I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Let's turn to Nevi and Luke. So maybe can you share, you know, one key takeaway from this book forum that you find important to share with our audience? Yeah, thanks. So I think the book forum, like the book itself, is very rich and generative. And each of the reviews teased, teased out a different aspect of the book. So, for instance, somebody commented on the nature of liberalism, somebody else um, on the ways in which the book spoke to international relations, which I think most of us, albeit reluctantly, call our disciplinary home, and especially in the manner in which many of the arguments that emerged from the book contradicted the precepts and the main theories that we use in IR to study the world. Um, but the, the thing that I thought was particularly important and also interesting that emerged from the forum was that all of us in different ways explored the political salience of the book and how the book speaks to many of the things going on in the world today. And I think that really stood out for me because that wasn't so explicit in the book itself. I think one of the things that came up again and again was Brexit and Trump. So these are also visions of some sort of racist imaginary in which the white man ostensibly is at the top of that hierarchy. Um, there's also talk about just how much the alt-right and the far-right have gained ground and how those are also very explicitly racist. I think one of the things that Duncan's book does really well is to show how nuanced and contradictory some of those visions were, because in these four figures, right? And so Wells in particular wasn't at all what we would perhaps call uh, a racist today. Um, but um, nonetheless, it does speak to a lot of the sort of, the, some of the other figures obviously speak a lot to racism in its overt form. But there's also parallels in, for instance, today's feminism. So feminism can also be, can also have, especially white liberal feminism in certain guises, can also have a benign patina, uh, but, but often is quite racist. And I think those kinds of, or transphobia, for instance, doesn't have to be exactly the same sort of racism or the same sort of discriminatory policies and practices, but there's definitely resonances there. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think a number of us picked on different ones in the forum. Yeah, I, I think uh, there was uh, two contradictory uh, 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 truths that kind of emerge uh, uh, from the book. Uh, one is the the pervasiveness of, uh, of this racism, of uh, this sort of Anglotopia that's very much rooted in white supremacy. So on the one hand, it's uh, we can find it everywhere. And I think, you know, the book does a great job of, of exploring that. But at the same time, and I, this was a point, I think, brought up by uh, quite a number of the reviewers, was also how the fragility as well of, uh, of this uh, dominant position that uh, many, some of the reviewers pointed out uh, the issues around, you know, it's very much linked to declinism and to a sense of decline and even kind of racial uh, uh, siege mentalities. Uh, it's fragile as well and easily broken. And uh, it's also limited, uh, particularly limited in its uh, intellectual range. And I think this was a point that was brought out by Sir Juan Park as well, was how fragile this, uh, this approach was too. So this simultaneous 
uh, all-pervasive, ubiquitous, uh, racist, uh, Anglo-topian view of the world is at the same time very fragile and limited at the same time. Uh, thank you, Nivi and Luke, for your insights. So in the book, Duncan also discusses alternative visions offered by African and Black critics. But in the forum, there are debates about how we should incorporate these visions. So what is your take on the ways in which we can engage with um, anti-racist inspirations? A good place to to start on on this one actually is uh, from uh, from Nivy's review when she talks about the limits of white imaginary. Uh, you know, she talks about what the promise of this sort of Anglo-Saxon utopia is and what it delivers. And I think this uh, gives us a sense of uh, what uh, uh, oppositions to this uh, racism, to this, uh, to what anti-racism uh, really needs to be uh, engaging with. And this is that the Anglo-Saxon utopias really fail on their own uh, terms. Uh, I think, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, Nivy talks about, you know, there's the promise of fairness, but what the Anglo-Saxon utopia delivers instead is, is racism, transphobia, misogyny. It, it uh, promises peace, but offers invasions. Uh, it promises prosperity, but gives unfettered capitalism. And it promises technological advancement, uh, but delivers uh, climate change and ecological crisis. So uh, in that sense, you know, a good place to start uh, in terms of, uh, of criticizing this tradition, uh, because we see this going through all the way up to the present day in terms of the way that uh, a kind of a liberal Anglosphere is, uh, is pushed and encouraged is uh, starting from the point that it actually has to a large degree, failed on its own terms. And I think it's what Nivi refers to as the sort of the, the limits of the white imaginary. Yeah, I mean, yes, I'd have to agree with Luke, especially because I did I, I indeed write those words. So, um, yeah, so I think I don't want to throw too much shade here at all. I don't want to criticize Duncan for not foregrounding these visions enough or sketching out alternative anti-racist imaginaries, because that was not the point of the book. And that's kind of what Duncan said initially. Um, but if I were if I were writing it, um, I think I would have really liked some more unpacking of uh, those visions, the steampunk movement, but especially Afrofuturism, because they did, to me, come across as slightly synthetic rather than sort of fully formed, super vibrant uh, ideas, which I think they are. And so I'm not sure... I'd use, I'd use the word better, but um, because again, this is not what Duncan was doing. I think what Duncan did do was provide a really important historicized grounding, which Luke also just gestures to, which helps us locate some of the lineage, lineages of racism today. And so he kind of sets that crucial terrain historically. And then I suppose that's what anti-racist thought, both politically and intellectually can build on. Yeah, maybe it makes sense for me to explain what I was trying to do. I was more interested in how they'd been engaged by other thinkers, other writers at the time and then somewhat later. So the steampunk literature is in there in the 1980s and 90s because it reappropriates or it appropriates that earlier 19th century moment. And many of the thinkers that I look at, above all H.G. Wells, and rewrites 19th century uh, imperial history in a kind of counterfactual vein. And so it's not that I look at it because I think it offers an amazing critique, but rather because it shows how you can, uh, there's a kind of temporal play at work 
that if you can imagine another counterfactual where you change around the historical assumptions, the presuppositions about historical tendencies and destinies, you end up with a very different picture. I then turn to the Afro-modern thinkers using uh, Robert Gooding Williams's term uh, for it, not to offer, again, a kind of thoroughgoing critique, because there are more radical thinkers that I could have looked at, but rather to look at people who were engaged in the debates at the time on some of the specific issues that I was looking at. I look at a range of thinkers, but I focus on two. So W.E. Du Bois, and I look at him partly because of his status at the time, and partly because he's writing very specifically about world history and how you might challenge narratives of world history that were circulating amongst those defending white supremacism. And then I turn to a much less well-known figure, um, a man called Theosophilus Scholes, who was a Jamaican Pan-Africanist. And he's particularly interesting for me because he is one of the very few thinkers uh, within the Afro-modern tradition who directly engages with the question of Anglo-American relations. And he's fascinating on that uh, for various reasons, but not least because he directly engages with about a dozen or so of the individuals who I'd talked about extensively elsewhere in the book. But of course, he does so in a very different way. He's doing it as a kind of critique of their egregious racism. And so, as I say in the book, one kind of political reason uh, for wanting to include this material rather than just the analytical uh, or historical value of it was that um, I didn't want to finish a book on white supremacism with giving the white supremacists, as it were, the final word. I wanted to step back and look at some of the look at the words and the writings of some of the individuals who were the, as it were, critical target, the object of the white supremacism being uh, propagated by the individuals that I'd spent most of the book analysing. Thank you so much, Duncan, Navi, and Luke for the conversations. I hope our audience can have a chance to read a forum or Duncan's book. See you in the next episode.